do something just a little bit different. And I've, I'm going to be reading, this is, this is the uh, defense that Stephen gave in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. And I'd like you to read along with me and follow in the King James or whatever version you got. If you'd like to read along with me in the version that I've got, I've got three copies of that here. This is the Weymouth. And it's it's in a modern, it's a modern speech New Testament is what it amounts to. But it gives the the sense very close to the the King James. So I'm choosing to read this this morning. Now you recall last Sunday we had a an idea of who Stephen was. Stephen was a deacon in the early church and he performed miracles and he did many interesting things as a person. He was well liked by everyone in the church. He was one who uh, was falsely accused by people who were troublemakers. I mean, they said the it says they were the um, the synagogue of the freed men and. Alexandrians and uh, Cyrenians and uh, and some of Asia, Cilicia, but they were arguing with Stephen. Rather than listening to what he had to say, they they chose to argue. You know, a lot of people will argue just for the sake of arguing. And uh, I... I don't know what to say to those people. I really don't. But Stephen did. He was led by the Spirit of God. And that's what we need to look to. to. When people are arguing with the truth, we need to rely on God to direct us rather than let us get involved and, and being uh, argumentative in the same spirit that they are. We need to rely on the Lord. And that's what he did here. And God gave him the opportunity to witness to these people with a witness that they couldn't really argue with. And they made their allegations and and then they took them by force and took them before the Sanhedrin and made even worse allegations. And the the high priest asked them, are these allegations true? And that's when Stephen chose to uh, give a defense. And in, in giving his defense, he gave a history, a very concise and very accurate history of the nation of Israel. And we'll... Uh, we'll start there. Uh, I'm going to start with verse 15 of chapter 6. And, and I'm, I'm going to be reading here from the, 
from the Weymouth version. If, if any of you would like to read along with me, I have several copies of that just for this chapter. If you'd like to do that. So either that or you can... Would you like one, brother? I'll, any, anyone else? Okay. I think I have I have another one here too. And the rest of you follow along in the King James uh, chapter seven of of Acts. All right. Verse 15 of chapter 6 says, At once the eyes of all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin were fastened on him, and they saw his face looking just like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these statements true? Stephen replied, Sirs, brethren, and fathers, listen to me. God most glorious appeared unto our father, Abraham, when he was living in Mesopotamia, before he, before he settled in Haran, and said unto him, Leave your country and your relatives, and come unto whatsoever land I appoint out to you. This was in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Whereupon he left Chaldea, and settled in Haran till after the death of his father. When God called him to remove unto this country where you now live. But he gave him no inheritance in it, no, not a single square yard of ground. Again, he quotes in Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 5. And yet he promised to bestow the land as a permanent possession on him and his posterity after him, and promised this at a time when Abraham was childless. And that's, again, in Genesis. And God declared that Abraham's posterity should, for 400 years, make their home in a country not their own, and be reduced to slavery and be oppressed and the nation, whichever it is, that enslaves them, I will judge, said God. <coughs> and afterwards they shall come out, and they shall worship me in this place. Then he gave, gave him the covenant of circumcision. Again, this is in Genesis uh, chapter 15. And under this covenant... He became the father of Isaac, whom he circumcised on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery in Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him from all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him governor over Egypt and all the royal household. And again, this is in Genesis 
and and also mentioned in Psalms, uh, another account of this same thing. But there came a famine throughout the whole of Egypt and Canaan, and great distress, so that our forefathers could not find could find no food. When, however, Jacob heard that there was wheat to be had, he sent our forefathers into Egypt. That was the first time. On their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Pharaoh was informed of Joseph's parentage. Then Joseph sent and invited his father, Jacob, and all his family, numbering 75 persons, to come to him. And Jacob went down into Egypt. There he died, and so did our forefathers. And they were taken to Shechem and were laid in the tomb, which Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a sum of money paid in silver. But as the time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise which God had made to Abraham, the people became many times more numerous in Egypt until there arose a foreign king over Egypt who knew nothing of Joseph. He adopted a crafty policy towards our race and oppressed our forefathers, making them cast out their infants so that they might not be permitted to live. At this time, Moses was born. Now notice this was a time when the people were enslaved and they had been there for many years and they had multiplied in in numbers. And now a new king came, uh, a king to Egypt, who didn't know a thing about Joseph and didn't really care. And and he adopted a policy that was uh, racist. They didn't like the Jews. They didn't didn't care for them at all. And and so they adopted this policy where all of the male children were to be put in the river or killed. And so Moses was born during this time. And he was a one there in verse 20 it says he was a wonderfully beautiful child. And for 3 months he was cared for in his father's house. At length he was cast out. But Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own, as her own son. So Moses was educated in the science of the Egyptians and, passed, and possessed great influence through his eloquence and his achievements. This is an interesting thing. This, the Pharaoh's daughter adopted this child. She saw the child floating in the bulrushes. We know the account of this, of Moses. Uh, re- being rescued from the uh, from from death, as he was floating in the in the Nile River in a basket that was designed to float, and Pharaoh's daughter found him, and ad- his 
sister was watching and said, I'll go find a, a woman to nurse this child for you. And of course he, she went and got her mother <laughs> and Moses' mother, by the way. And he was raised at, by his mother. And at, as Pharaoh's daughter's son, and as such was taught all the sciences and all of the, uh, had all the benefits of being in the royal household. He was taught eloquence in, in Egyptian and probably he knew the eloquence of the Hebrew as well. And and his achievements. I, now I don't know what all these achievements might have been, but he was uh, a talented person, obviously, and was trained in the in the household of of Egypt. Verse twenty three goes on. He says, "And when he was just forty years old, it occurred to him to visit his brethren, the the descendants of Israel, seeing one of them." wrongfully treated, he took his part and secured justice for the sufferer by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed his brethren to be aware that by him God was sending them deliverance. This, however, they did not understand. The next day also he came and found two of them fighting, and he endeavored to make peace between them. Sirs, he said, you are brothers. Why are you wronging one another? But the man who was doing the wrong resented his interference and asked, who appointed you magistrate and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So he says, this is, uh, you know, they, it became well known that he had killed the Egyptian. And he didn't realize that it had been well known. And so Moses fled from the country and went to live in the land of Midian. Again, this, this is all things that are in the Old Testament, things that the Jews were trained in to know the history of their country. And so this was not something that was new to this Sanhedrin court but as, as we'll see this went on for some time until Stephen changed the tone of his presentation and we'll see that in just a minute here uh So in verse 28, it says, uh, Alarmed at, it, at this question, Moses fled from the country and went to live in the land of Midian. There he became the father of two sons. So Moses was afraid that he would be hung for murder, so to speak. He, and he fled out of the country. And, and he got married in Midian to a Midianite woman and became the father of two sons. 
But at the end of 40 years, there appeared to him in the desert of Mount Sinai an angel in the middle of a flame of fire in a bush. We know the account of the flaming bush and how the angel spoke to him out of the center of a bush and the bush that was burning but didn't burn up. When Moses saw this, he wondered at the sight. But on his going up to look further, the voice of the Lord was heard saying, I am the God of your forefathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Quaking with fear, Moses did not dare gaze. Take off your shoes, said the Lord, for the spot on which you are standing is holy ground. I have seen, yes, I have seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. Now this is what Moses had thought he, the people would understand when he was living there 40 years ago, but they didn't understand. But notice the difference. He hadn't been sent. He hadn't been sent to do that. He was going to try doing it on his own. And killing an Egyptian wasn't necessarily what God had planned for him. And so now God comes down to him and he says, now I'm going to send you. After 40 years, I'm going to send you back into Egypt. And you will deliver your people. And so I am sending you to Egypt, is what he said. This is all in Exodus chapter 3 and around verse 10. Now, all of this, the children of Israel, or even the Sanhedrin, they knew these things. He says, the Moses whom they rejected asking him, who appointed you magistrate and judge. The same Moses we find God sending as a magistrate and a deliverer by the help of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This is the difference. God sent him and gave him the power, gave him the responsibility to not only be a magistrate like a judge, but also to be a deliverer. And we have a judge and a deliverer also. Moses was a picture of Jesus Christ. And God sent Jesus here to the earth to pay the price of our sin and to bring us out and deliver us. And no doubt he has the help of many angels for each of us. Okay. Verse 36 This was he who brought them out after performing marvels and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the desert for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the descendants of Israel, God will raise up a prophet for you from among your brethren, just as he raised me up. This is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18. This is a prophecy 
of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy. And those of you who are reading along with me in this Weymouth know that this is all in capital letters, that quotation. And it says, God will raise up a prophet for you from among your brethren, just as he raised me up. This was Moses speaking. And that one that was being prophesied was Jesus. This is, this is he who among the congregation in the desert, together with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai, and with our forefathers, who received ever-living utterances to hand, to hand on to us. Our forefathers, however, would not submit to him, but spurned his authority, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They said to Aaron, Make gods for us to march in front of us. For as for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This is in Exodus chapter 32. And we know the account of when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. He was up there a long time. And the children of Israel said, well, Aaron, you you make us gods. We, we don't know what happened to Moses. We don't know. And we want... And they were looking back to Egypt, remembering the flesh pots, the food that they had back there, the, the leeks and the garlics and the onions. And they're, they're tired of this. And they, didn't, and they really didn't want to hear the things that God had to say. It says they would not submit to Moses and his authority. They spurned his authority. They turned... This authority came from God himself, and they didn't want to hear that. And they turned their hearts back to Egypt and asked to have other gods. Moreover, moreover, they made a calf at that time and offered sacrifice to the idol and kept rejoicing in the gods which their own hands had made. They set this golden calf up and were worshiping that instead of worshiping the true God. So God turned from them and gave them up to worship the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. There, and here is another quotation out of the book of Amos. Were they victims and sacrifices which you offered me? Forty years in the desert, O house of Israel. Yes, you lifted up Molech, lifted up Molech's tent, and the star of the god Rephan, the images which you made in order to worship them. This this thing about being lifted up, you lifted up Molech's tent. He says that is the offering that you gave to me, is worshiping other gods. That's the idea there uh, in mocking God like this is the worship we're going to give you and again this was a prophecy our forefathers 
had the tent of testimony in the desert built as he who spoke to Moses had instructed him to make it in imitation of the model which he had seen. That tent was bequeathed to the next generation of our forefathers. Under Joshua, notice that King James says Jesus, but this is Joshua. They brought it with them when they were taking possession of the land of the Gentiles, whom God drove out before them. So it continued until David's time. David obtained favor with God and asked leave to provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Moses, yet the Most High does not dwell in buildings erected by men's hands. But as the prophet declares, the sky is my throne and the earth is the footstool for my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what resting place shall I have? Did not my hand form this universe? If, if God can form the universe, like molding something in his hands, how is anybody going to build a house for him? <laughs> no, he says... This, and not, not to say that he, he was saying this is foolishness, though it is. But he says, are, how are you going to do this? And this is another quotation, by the way. This, uh, from verse 49 and 50, that's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 66. And, and we see, uh, they spoke of the, back up in verse 44 of the tent of the testimony that's an interesting uh, phrase there it is uh, the tent of God's presence as God sat there be- at between the cherubim on top of the ark of the covenant this was where the, the this was the tent that held that ark of the covenant uh, the King James, I think, says uh, a witness. And it was God's witness to the people of Israel. His presence there. It wasn't just the fiery, cloudy pillar that went with them. But this was a special place, the holiest of holies. This is where God resided between the cherubim. That was the tent of the testimony. And he's saying that God went with you in those places, but you rejected him. Uh, and it, it went on like that for a long time, even through the, David's whole kingdom. And David desired to build a house for God. And God acknowledged that, and I believe he blessed David for his desire. But he says, you've, you've done wrong things. And, I, and it won't be you that'll do it. You can put aside uh, materials and, and goods and money to build that temple, but it'll be Solomon, your son, that'll build it, not you. And then 
at this point right here in verse 51, there comes a change in the presentation that Stephen gives. Listen to the change in tone. O stiff-necked men, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are continually at strife with the Holy Spirit, just as your forefathers were. Which of the prophets did not your forefathers persecute? Yes, they killed those who announced beforehand the advent of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law given through angels and yet have not obeyed it. Now he's speaking to the Sanhedrin court here. These are serious allegations. He says, you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. You're continually at strife with the Holy Spirit. You're arguing against the Holy Spirit because you'd have heard the prophecy of the Messiah otherwise. You'd have heard the prophecy of Jesus. He says, you're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You don't want to hear what God has to say. Your hearts are turned against God. And this is a serious accusation. He says, you even killed the, your forefathers killed and persecuted the prophets who prophesied of, of Jesus. And he says, you've now become the murderers and you have now become, um, where is it here? Yes, they killed those who announced beforehand the advent of the righteous one, that is Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You not only are their offspring, you're doing worse than they did. This is, you've killed the Messiah. You who received the law given through angels and yet have not obeyed it. You received that law, it was given to you but you didn't receive it in your heart. As they listened to these words, this is verse 54. As they listened to these words, they became infuriated and gnashed their teeth at him, but full of the Holy Spirit and looking up to heaven, Stephen saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. I can see heaven wide open, he said, and the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. Upon this, with a loud cry, they stopped their ears and rushed upon Stephen, and in a body dragged him out of the city and stoned him. The witness, witnesses throwing off their outer garments and giving them unto the care of a young man called Saul. This is Saul that we know as the Apostle Paul now. But at this point, he was not converted. He was there and he held the garments of those who were stoning Stephen to death. So they stoned Stephen while he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then rising on his knees, he cried aloud, Lord, do not reckon this sin against them. 
And with these words, he died. And Saul fully approved of his murder. At this time, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. A party of devout men, however, buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul cruelly harassed the church. He went into house after house and dragging off both men and women threw them into prison. Evidently, he was authorized by the Sanhedrin to do this. But this is an interesting account and certainly it's one that is hard to hear knowing that this man was serving God and did the things that God wanted him to and he heard and was even given opportunity to perform miracles in Israel there in Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin didn't want to hear the things that he had to say and and Stephen's death compounded and added to the death of Jesus and and Stephen was glad to even be a martyr for for God because he heard and he, he even was given that vision of seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I think of the song that says, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. I see Jesus yonder in the promised land. Work is over, now I'm coming to thee. I see Jesus standing, waiting for me. You know, this was Stephen's testimony. He saw God, and he was blessed. He said, they said that the, he, his face appeared to be a, the face of an angel. But that's when he was seeing this vision of Jesus. And it's exciting. This is an, an exciting account of the first martyr the service of God. And are there comments on this? I've the the reading is uh, if they saw something in the comparison with the King James, perhaps you want to bring that up, or or any of this account, Brother Wayne, you look well, thoughtful. Yes. There's a difference, though. They were convicted, 
but they didn't turn from their sin. They became angry and jealous of the Messiah. And and they didn't want to hear it. And the, the world is like that. They don't want to hear about the Messiah. They don't want to hear Jesus. They said, and they make all sorts of accusations against Jesus as well. Brother Tyler? I was just going to say, you know, where the scripture talks about where your treasures, where your treasures are, there your heart will be, your heart will be there. Yes. So where was their, where was their heart? It obviously wasn't focused on, on Christ. No. It he, was, it was focused on the flesh, you know. Yes. Um, we've talked about this before about that they had attained power and prestige in their own eyes, but what did the scripture say about that? It says your 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 lips speak these things, but your heart's far from me. Absolutely. We need to be careful of our own hearts Amen. when we hear the word of God proclaimed that we receive it with joy and not with anger the way they did. Pointing out our sin is a good thing and God does that for each of us. And and repentance is what he calls for. And that's what was called for here. And, And yet they didn't want to hear it. Not only did they not want to hear it, they they became angry and wanted to do things on their own power. Well, I guess Moses had tried to do that when he killed the Egyptian and thought that the children of Israel were going to understand. But he hadn't been sent to do that that way. We need to look at our lives. Sometimes we want to go do things for God, you know. That's not what he called us to do. He called us to hear him Amen. and to follow him. Not our own desires, not our own understanding. He said, lean not on your own understanding. But we need to hear God, whether he's... Now, we don't have to have him talk to us out of a burning bush to understand. The Holy Spirit will guide and direct your hearts if you'll be willing to hear it and follow its guiding rather than your own. And I assure I assure you, you'll be blessed in following him. I'm thinking of Saul in this situation. Yes. It just re- reminds me that we need to not be negligent about speaking the truth to those who <coughs> refuse it. We never know what seed that the Lord might have us to plant today that might produce something in a later day. No doubt, no doubt that produced that seed was planted. Heard that sermon. He, he yes. Strongly, but 
Yes. It, it was eating on Saul, too. Yeah, I mean, he, he was, this young man from Tarsus was there, and he fully approved of Stephen's death because he was led by the Pharisees and by the Sanhedrin and given that understanding in his own mind that he was responsible for doing these things. We need to be careful and watch our own hearts. Help us, each one, to be guided by the Holy Spirit rather than by our own inclinations, by our own understanding. You know, it's a blessing to serve God. And when we ourselves turn against God, and and it happens, our hearts are, are human, but we need to repent of those things when we find that God is not desiring that of us. Repent and turn back to him again and help, our, help us to grow and to learn and to, to understand. We grow from one sphere of faith to the next and that growth is what I... When I first came here to this church, just a year, year and a half ago, I'm not sure exactly how long ago was I, but I came here and I, one thing that I wanted for me was spiritual growth. But I wanted it for you as well, each of the members of this church. And I wanted this church to grow we haven't grown in numbers. That's not what I prayed for. That'd be nice too. I, I assure you, we, we ought to be out telling others. But I want us to grow, you and I together, with the leading and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Not that if, I, if you hear me say something that it doesn't gel with that, you, you let me know. <laughs> I want to hear that. I want to know so that I can repent, so that I can change, so that I can be what God would have me to be. We can't know our own heart. Isn't that the truth? He says we can't, but he does. He knows it. Absolutely. So just to be honest and look to him, it's the only way that we can understand our own heart. Amen. Amen. Andy, you had a comment.
got all that I gave to him when I was saved. Yes. You know, I gave it to him as far as the title goes, but then every single day of my life I have to sort of keep making sure I'm giving it to him, you know, <laughs> right. because it's That's right. Yes, and I think that when Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, God took him aside and taught him and gave him the power and, and the authority, the responsibility to go back to those Christians and to the, to the world. Gave him a responsibility to go to the Gentiles and to teach them. And, and he, God can give us authority. But if we start doing things on our own authority, we are wrong, no matter what we do. There's nothing wrong with plowing. It says the plowing of the wicked is sinful, you know? We, and we can look at our own hearts and say, am I, am I wicked? Am, what, am, what have I done? That, what am I doing that is not right? And God can convict us and show us a better way and we need to have our hearts open to that so that we can receive it. Well, our time is up about nine minutes ago, so <laughs> let's let's close here and we'll have a short break and come back in just a few minutes. Excuse me. Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. But thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou, know, thou hast seen me and hast tried mine heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep from the, from the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither and the wickedness of them which dwell therein? The beasts are consumed and the birds... Because they said, he shall not see our last end. <clears throat> if thou hast run with the footmen and they have wearied, 
thee, then thou canst not contend with the horses. And if in the land of peace wherein thou trustest, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of the Jordan? For even thy brethren in the house of thy father, even they have dealt treacherously with thee. Yea, they have called a multitude after thee, believe them not, though they speak fair words unto thee. I have forsaken mine house, and I have left mine heritage, and I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of their enemies. Mine heritage is unto me as a lion in the forest that crieth out against me, therefore I have hated it. Mine heritage is unto me as a speckled bird, the birds round about against her. Come ye assembled, all the beasts of the field come to devour Many pastors have destroyed my vineyards. They have trodden my portion underfoot, and they have made my pleasant portion as a desolate wilderness. And they have made it desolate, and being desolate, it mourneth unto me. The whole land is made desolate, because no man layeth it to heart. The spoilers are come unto all the high places through the wilderness, and for the sword of the Lord shall devour from the one end of the land even unto the other. Even of the land, no flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat, but have reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but shall not profit. They shall be ashamed of your revenues because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus says the Lord against all mine evil neighbors that touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. And it shall come to pass after that I have plucked them out, I will return and have compassion on them and I will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. And it shall come to pass that they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, the the Lord liveth, as they have taught my people to swear by Baal. Then they shall be built in the midst of my people. But if they will not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, saith the Lord. That's a pretty railing indictment against the people of Israel, isn't it? What was the 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 content, the time, the the events that had taken place to lead to this point? He gives just a slight peek there. He says, Baal, their hearts have Pledge to Baal, but to Baal, excuse me, not Baal. And he says there, they haven't, they've thought, they've sought to do treacherously. He says, thy father and thy brethren. He says, how long will the land be desolate? How long will it be afflicted? He says, I have forsaken mine heritage. I have left my, my, mine heritage. And I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of mine enemies. We know Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. What was the, what was the, the scenario here? Israel was getting carried into captivity. The enemy was, they were utterly done. They had departed from serving the Lord their heart was not given over to serving the Lord, but to Baal and all else that would that they could follow. 
Jeremiah decried this and prophesied the Lord's word against the people in these two chapters here that we've that we have here in 11 and 12. But we read here the account in, in, in chapter 12. We'll go backwards in time and read chapter 11 just momentarily. But nonetheless, they had broken the covenant of God. And where were their hearts? What was their attitude towards God? Their attitude towards God was that he was disposable. He had given them all, this, all these things, but they had turned their heart from him. They had turned away from him. And Jeremiah was there to say, ah, ah, ah. You've turned your back on God, but he's not done with you. He's going to deliver you up for punishment. As a parent disciplines their children. But he goes on there and he says, Thus said the Lord against all mine evil neighbors that have touched the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and I will pluck out the house of Judah from among them. And it shall come to pass that after I pluck them out, I will return and have compassion on them and will bring them again and every man his heritage and every man his land. Who was that too? It wasn't that he was going to give it to back everyone. It was those that had a desire to serve him that had a change of attitude in, in their hearts towards God. Let's look at uh, chapter 11. Read verses 1 through 4, starting there in chapter 11 of Jeremiah. says, The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear ye the words of the covenant, and speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of the covenant. Ouch. Ouch. That ought to hurt. That's a warning. Cursed be the man which I have commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron of furnace and saying, obey my voice and do to them according to all which I command you. So shall ye be my people and I will be your God. That I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers and give them the land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then answered I and said, so be it, O Lord. Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear thee the words of the covenant and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imaginations of their evil heart. Therefore, I will bring unto them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. Just so it was mentioned this morning about our hearts. God knows the hearts of men. We've went over this time and time again over in the account of Samuel when he brought all the sons of Jesse before Samuel to see who would be king. And Samuel goes, ah, this is it. When Abijah come before him, he says, this, this is it. He's the king. And God rebuked Samuel, the servant of God, and said, what? I alone know the hearts of men. You all see the exterior. 
but I alone judge the hearts of men. And he had found something in him that was not acceptable because his heart wasn't given to God as David's heart was. That ought to tell us something. We we have to align our hearts with God. But it requires us to beg God to give us the understanding and the desire to submit our hearts to him. That's humbling ourselves. That God can then use us to accomplish his will. It's not vice versa. We submit our hearts and we tell God what to do. It's the opposite. We ought not to be deceived that we are in control. We are not in control, folks. We are far from it. So, what is the what is what are they hoping to accomplish there? Well, he says, "Follow me. Obey me." And he says there in verse 8, he says, Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked ever in their own imaginations of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring unto them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they do them not. And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found, and among the men of Judah, and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which have refused to hear my words. And they went after the gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I have made with their fathers. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them, which shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Then shall the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and cried unto the gods unto whom they offer incense, but they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. It's like, buddy, you clinged unto this false god over here that has no breath of life. Gods of wood, silver, bronze, <laughs> hay. <laughs> Let them deliver you, because they're not. We have to be careful, the Lord's people, what we place our trust in. Because those things won't deliver us in the day of judgment, nor in the day of trouble. The only one that can provide deliverance is our God. In Christ, mind you. Why do you think the, the scripture tells us to examine ourselves? We talk about this act of reconciling often. You can't reconcile your taxes. What happens? You pay in. But our God demands that much more of us. Submit our hearts to him that he may prove them. Submit our hearts to God that we can examine them according to Scripture and see if they match up. 
But first we have to ask the Lord to humble us and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to show us our faults and our troubles and the things that cause us to fall short. Repentance is a continual process. I don't know about y'all, but I have to turn myself around quite a few times during the day. (laughs) Because the flesh will get the best of us. Our hearts will get the best of us. Look at what look at what happened here. Some of these things, some of these people may have made innocent choices, they or that so they thought. But one choice begets another, and pretty soon our options are limited, right? So that ought to help us to consider our options there when we're making a decision. Don't enter into it carefully. It requires us to check our, our attitude, our heart before God. Let's continue on here. <clears throat> it says, Therefore thus said the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, and they shall not be able to escape, though they shall cry unto me, and I will not hearken unto them. Then shall the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem go, and cry out unto the gods in which they offer sacri- uh, incense, but they shall not be saved of them in all the time of their trouble. For according to the number of their cities were thy gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, have they set up altars that shame, uh, that shameful thing, even altars to burn incense unto Baal. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up and cry or pray for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their troubles. What hath my beloved to do in mine house, seeing that how hast wroth lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from thee when thou doest evil and thou rejoicest. And the Lord called thy name of a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. And with the noise of great tumult, he hath kindled fire unto thee, unto it, excuse me. And the branches, it are broken. Of it are broken, excuse me. For the Lord of the host that planted thee hath pronounced evil against thee for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense to Baal. And the Lord hath given me knowledge of it, and I know it, and thou showest me their doings, but I was like a lamb and an, uh, or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut it off from the land of the living, that this name may not be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, thou judgest righteously, that triest the reins in the heart, and let me see thy vengeance on them. For unto thee I have revealed my cause. Therefore thus says the Lord of the men of Anathoth, that seek thy life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Lord, that thou die not by their hands, by our hands, excuse me, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. The sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no more remnant of them. And I will bring evil upon the men of Anathoth, even the year of their visitation. Evil was devised in their hearts to do what they wanted to do before God. He had established them. He had provided for them. 
He had told him, I'll give you what I've promised you, but obey my voice. Nothing else in this life can provide us salvation unto the next life. How would you feel if that happened? If you provided a way out for something and they turned and said, oh, thanks, thanks, Joe, down the road. When it was someone else that had provided them the goods and a means to be to survive. That's how God felt. He was angered because they chose and all of the things that he'd done for them and decided, ah, that's no good anymore. We want to go after this God. We want to go after this thing because it's fun. It's good. Well, that goodness only lasted for a short time, didn't it? There was no sustaining goodness as the Lord provides. And the people played the harlot and they paid the price. So, what's our heart's attitude today? James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 6 here. It says, Go go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of laborers you have reaped down... Uh, have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud. They crieth, and they cry, cries of them which have reaped and are entered into the years of the Lord of Seboeth. Yea, ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts in the, uh, as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just and have, doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and have long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. <clears throat> Be ye patient also, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudgeth no one against another, brethren, lest ye condemn. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken of the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure, and ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, brethren, swear neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. And I'll stop there. So there in the first past, in the first couple of verses there in this passage, he says, he addresses the rich men. When I was doing my studying, he says these were not the Lord's people. I beg to differ. That was the commentary I read. I beg to differ. The scripture speaks otherwise. 
These were people that were supposed to be servants of the Lord. But they put their trust and their riches rather in God. Why do you think the Lord talks about riches as being something that causes a stumbling block for us to enter the kingdom? Because putting some thought to this, riches, you make yourself like God on the earth. I'm not saying that having riches is a bad thing, but I'm saying if you place your trust in it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to not fulfill what you put your trust in, right? Like God does. It makes you to be, if you, if you examine, for say, the elite in Hollywood, think about these, these actors that have all this money. They have wealth, they have prestige, they have fame. People worship them for who they are, right? They call them good, and they say they're benevolent, but you see things like what happened a couple weeks ago on TV. Men are fallible. They, they fall from fame and fortune because of their choices. You see the, the reward of what they get for their actions, right? So that's one of the purposes he's saying. Yeah, you re- rich man, you weep and howl for misery that comes upon you. Your riches are corrupted. He says these things are going to go the way of the dodo, gone. Many of y'all don't know about the dodo. It was, a, it was a bird that went extinct because it wasn't very smart. It made bad choices. No, I'm just kidding. They talk about the incredible ignorance of the dodo. So, you know, I don't blame that on evolution. I blame that on the bird <laughs> and the people that took after it. So, but nonetheless, he says, your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth Your gold and silver is cankered. And it will be witness against you. So he says, you've, you've taken of the increase through fraud by the field over your reapers. You've lived in pleasure on the earth and wanton. When you're rich, you can buy just about anything you want. But you can't buy God. And you can't buy your way to salvation, that's for sure. Which is sad that people would seek to do that. But you see that Simon the sorcerer did the same thing over in the scripture. He saw that they that the Holy Spirit came on and he's like, oh, give me this power that I might do this. And they're like, they rebuked him. Why? He wanted it for status, it seemed. He believed what they were teaching, but then through his statement, they rebuked him. He says, your money is nothing. So, what was this encouragement here? He was telling them, he says, don't place your trust in these things because if not, you're going to be delivered over to judgment. It was a warning. You get your reward now, you won't have a reward later. Why? Because you're looking for the wrong things. This was to strengthen and encourage. The exhortation here was that they would overcome these things. He goes on there after those first couple verses, down in verse 7, he says, Be therefore patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, 
and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and latter rains. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Make preparation. Preparing our hearts to serve the Lord. It requires us to weed out the garbage. To put fertilizer. To provide water. Who does the water come from? Jesus. He requires us to tend tenderly to the things which we are uh, which we have pledged ourselves in service. Sometimes that weeding comes from one another, right? You see things in someone else that's not good, and you help weed that weed that area, right? Or you help take care of them when they're not at their best and they're feeling ill. But also in our own labor, each individual, we're asked tasked to bear up our own load as well when we can. So what does our heart, what does our heart say about us? What is our attitude towards the Lord? 139th Psalm. Hundred and thirty nine Psalm. Just a few short verses there. It's only twenty four verses. So it says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts from afar. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. The Lord's not fooled by our actions. He knows us intimately. He knows our hearts better than we know our own, like we talked about this morning. It says, For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me beside and before, and hast laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, and it is high, and I cannot attain to it. Whither shall I go into thy spirit, and whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If thou take wings of the morning, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and even the night shall the light be upon me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee. But the night shineth as the day, the darkness as the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb, and I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee, and what, when I was made in secret and curiously wroth in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see the substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members are written which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thine thoughts unto me, O God, and how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, that they are more in number than the sand, and when I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God, and to depart 
from me therefore, yet ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies make thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that they hate me, they hate thee, and I am not, excuse me, and am I not grieved of those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. These words are altogether perfect and of comfort for us. He says, For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. He knows our thoughts, he knows what we speak in our innermost thoughts, and what we speak outwardly. Let us check our attitude and our heart that we speak the things which God would have us to, that we think the thoughts which God would have us to. And if we don't think those thoughts, then we pray that God remove them from us. We cannot change ourselves, but only God can change us. But he requires us to submit to him. Heart, not only with our heart, but our mind and our body and our soul as well. He says there, the darkness, he, know, he can't tell the difference of darkness from light because he sees all. There is nothing that is hidden from God, no matter how much we think it is. So the next time you're alone and you do something that you probably shouldn't do, Remember, it's even though we're alone, we're not really alone. The Lord sees us. He says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works that my soul knoweth right well. He made us. He says, my substance was not hid from thee even when I was made in the other parts of the earth. He knows us more intimately than we know ourselves, like I said earlier. But he goes on down there. He says, Surely wilt thou slay wicked, O God, and depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak wickedly against thee, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Why do you tell us? think, think the scripture tells us to be careful of our company? It says, what do you say? Bad, bad company corrupts good morals. We hear that all the time. Because those people we associate with have influence over us. Be careful when we make plans or we make agreements with people because that enslaves us to them of a sort. That's why when, when we talked about last week, separate yourselves from those people. Doesn't mean you can't speak to them, have things, but don't hold company with them or concert with them. And he goes on down there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. What was the psalmist's plea there? If there is anything in me contrary to you, God, remove it from me. 
we read in the scripture that Enoch walked with God. He walked with God. He kept his company. God kept his company because he desired to do what God asked him to. That's why he didn't taste death, right? He, he followed God. Scripture says David was a man after God's own heart, but yet he sinned. What was the difference? When he realized his sin, he repented and asked God to remove it from him and so he could move on and continue to serve God. We are not a perfect people, folks. We never will be. The only thing that can perfect us and, com and complete us, not in the sense of the world being perfect without flaw, but the only one who can complete us is Christ. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I promise I'm going to end soon. But you know, they say the Latin word for preacher is liar. First Corinthians chapter 12. A good brother told me that once. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 23. He says, And those members of the body which think to be less honorable, <clears throat> upon these bestow more abundant honor. And on the uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness, for our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor unto the parts with lack. There should be no schism in the body, but the members should have the same care for one another. Whether one member suffer, the members suffer with it. One member be honored, all members rejoice with it. Now you that the body of Christ and our members in particular, I think I wrote this down incorrectly. Y'all bear with me. Yes. Back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I caught myself. I knew I was off by one chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. It says, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore ever, whoso shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself so as to let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many men are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. For if we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned of this world. Wherefore, my brethren, when we are together to eat, tarry one for another. If any man is hungry, let him eat at home, and yet not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. What do you think the intent of this passage here that Paul was Writing to the church of Corinth. Let's 
The Lord's Supper was an ordinance of importance to the church. It requires that one look at oneself introspectively and reconciling oneself with what the Scripture teaches and what our Lord exemplified. He says there, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of the bread and drink of this cup unwardly shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So that ought to make us be more concerned with how our heart is and how we conduct ourselves with one another and those outside in the world, both in private and in public. Because like we said over there, the Lord knows our whole life no matter where, where we're at. No matter what time of day it is. The ordinance was given to the church members as a way to remember the sacrifice of Christ and that he gave his whole being to please the Father. What's the attitude? And the last place will turn. Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Actually, it's about chapter 10, excuse me. Chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 26. It says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, therefore remaineth no sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment, of fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. And he that despises Moses' law died with Mount Mercy under the two, two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose you that he be thought worthy, who have trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he is sanctified and an unholy thing and hath done despite under the spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance is belongeth unto me, and I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but call to remembrance the former days in which after, the, <clears throat> after you were illuminated, you endured a great flight of affliction. Partly whilst that you became a gazing stock both of reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of being my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye had in heaven a better and more enduring substance. Cast not therefore away your confidence, with which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, that ye might receive the promise. For a little while, and that he that shall come will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul hath no pleasure in him. But we are not of them which draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe unto the saving of the soul. Wow. That knocks us on our feet, off our feet, doesn't it? He says there, after uh, sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, therefore remaineth no sacrifice. Someone who continually 
practices that same sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, we're held to far greater account after we receive the knowledge of the truth, aren't we? There is, we are without excuse after coming to the knowledge of the Lord. But the desire is, is when it is revealed to us that we sin, we repent of those things. Lest we continue and we trod underfoot the, the blood and the sacrifice of our Lord. Counting the, the covenant with which we are sanctified as an unholy thing despite the spirit of grace. Because God will bring vengeance on them, it says. Why do you think the punishment that was inflicted on the sons of Korah were so severe and sudden? There was no remorse. They had said in their heart, we're going to play, play with these other gods, the gods of the Egyptians, and worship the golden calf. And God said, I'm done. You've had enough time to repent. You've had enough time to change and you're done. Why do you think those that looked upon a serpent received healing from their illness? It's because the sons of Israel turned their heart from God. Why do you think they were carried into captivity? Because they turned their heart from God. Their attitude was one of contempt and disregard, not obedience. Why do you think the lives of Ananias and Sapphira were required of them because they defrauded God and his people. Why do you think that those of the Sanhedrin and those of notable power of the Jewish people lost their reward as the children of God as a whole? Because of their lack of obedience and their hearts being turned against God. Not that they still they didn't have the opportunity. They had the opportunity. And there's still an opportunity for a remnant of those that believe, of which we're a part of. Let us consider our attitude and our heart before God. It requires us that for us to do that before observing the Lord's Supper as well. But it should be a continual thing not just a one-time thing. And we're all required to do it. Lest we bring the contempt of God on us. So let us consider these things. I encourage you to study it for yourself and prove that the, Lord, that the word of the Lord is what it says it is.